look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. A different podcast for you this week, a media podcast. We've got Adam Schefter from ESPN and Katie Nolan from Fox Sports. I asked Adam Schefter where he got his intense curiosity. I always remember waiting in my driveway for Newsday and the New York Times to be delivered. And it would come, and I would scour the sports section, and I'd love to find little gossipy things. And when my dad would come home from work, I would be like, you're not going to believe this. And I guess, in a way, 40-plus years later, I'm still doing the same thing. Now I get to say to an audience a little bit bigger than just my dad, you're not going to believe this, but here's what's happening. With Katie Nolan, I asked her, what exactly is her dream job? To be like a late-night host. I was going to say like a John Oliver, but... I thought you were going to say, I want to succeed Dan Shaughnessy as the sports yes, columnist Yes, that is, I've Globe. lived to succeed Shanks. And now my conversation with ESPN information meister, Adam Schefter. Back on the podcast with Adam Schefter of ESPN. Now, I've interviewed people in some strange places. I interviewed Brandon Marshall of the Jets in the lobby of an office building in New York when we couldn't find anywhere else to do it. And so today, I have to say, we're here on one of the last days in November, and we are in Adam Schefter's car (laughs) in the parking lot at the Manhasset train station on Long Island. And uh, In in a standing zone, by the way, so we could get pulled over here and told to move at any moment, Peter, and the podcast would then be disrupted. Anyway, well, very happy to have Adam Schefter on the podcast this week. Adam, thanks a lot for joining me. Peter, it's an honor to be with you. I've worked... For you before, it is nice to work with you, and and I truly mean this when I say this, and a lot of people won't even know this, when I worked for you, when you were running for Sports Illustrated, and I was a stringer back in Denver, and you had about five core stringers, that's what they referred to, and I went from being a Denver Broncos stringer for you filing reports after the Broncos game, to becoming one of your five core reporters, along with men like Ron Borges and John McClain. That was one of the great honors of my career back in the day. Oh, that's so cool. And it's it's really true. Well... You've taken a bit of a step up from being a core <laughs> reporter for the Inside the NFL column in Sports Illustrated. Adam Schefter is my guest on the podcast. So, Adam, let's uh, go a little bit beyond Manhasset, Long Island. And I wanted to start by just asking you, you're such an intensely curious person. And I wondered, look back to your childhood, look back to when you were a kid, and how did you get this curious gene that makes you so interested in chasing even the most little of minutiae around the NFL? That's a great question, Peter, and I appreciate you asking it. And I'll say this to you. I always remember growing up on Long Island and waiting in my driveway for Newsday and the New York Times to be delivered. And it would come and I would scour the sports section and I'd love to find little gossipy things. And this is true as a little boy. And I would love for my dad to come home from work and say, you're not going to believe this. 
the Yankees are going to make a run at Reggie Jackson, or they're trading this particular player. I loved reading that stuff. And even back then, you'd pick up the New York Post and read Peter Vesey and some of the NBA gossip. Newsday, you once wrote for Newsday. I wrote, mm-hmm. read your stuff back in the day. Tom Verducci wrote for Newsday. I, I just love Tony Kornheiser, man. There was a, Tony Kornheiser. a great roster of people who, who worked for Newsday. And that was one of the papers I grew up reading. And I would literally wait for the paper to be delivered. I would scour it every single day. I'd read all the agate. I'd look for all the stuff. And when my dad would come home from work, I would be like, you're not going to believe this. And I guess in a way, 40 plus years later, I'm still doing the same thing. Because now I get to say to an audience a little bit bigger than just my dad, you're not going to believe this, but here's what's happening. So it's really no different. I'm still a 10-year-old boy, and I've never really grown up. You know, I think that's a really good way to put it. I think that, you know, I, I found out in fifth grade that I really wanted to do this for a living, that I wanted to write, that I wanted to be a reporter, just because it's just what I figured out early on that I love to do. And it sounds like you are exactly the same. Well, it's also a world that, and I know this sounds strange, I didn't think was attainable. Like, I thought other people did these jobs. Right. Nobody said to me, and my parents were great with me and uh, provided me with a lot of opportunities and uh, a great foundation, but but nobody said to me, and I don't blame anyone, you can do anything you want to do. You want to work for the New York Yankees one day? You want to go be George Costanza working for George Steinberg? <laughs> you, you can go do that. You want to be the president? You can do that. And I also was in school with a guy by the name of Michael Nissenson in elementary school and then middle school and high school. And I remember his dad, Herschel Nissenson. Oh, yeah. was the AP, AP college sports football writer. And I always right? heard about Herschel. And I'm like, wow. Like, people do that? They get paid to cover games and right. write about... and. It was so cool. And then when I went to Michigan and I got to be around some people like Mitch Album and Thomas George, I was in awe. Yeah. I was in awe. And I've always had tremendous respect for the people who have done what we did, which is why it meant so much to me, truly, to be a core reporter for the great Peter King, why it meant so much to me to meet Will McDonough and ride over with him from the airport in Phoenix to the owners' meetings. Just... I've always had great respect for the people like Chris Mortensen, who have been pioneers in this industry, who have paved the way, who have done great work, and who have contributed in the ways that they have. I agree. I mean, the Will McDonough stuff, for people who are listening to this who don't know who Will McDonough is, you know, I think one of the great things about our business is, just like every business, we all exist and we all are in the business doing what we're doing because we've climbed on the backs of other people. And Will McDonough... First of all, when I went to his funeral, I told his widow, Denise, I said, you know, I say this with incredible respect, but Will McDonough is responsible for so much of what's happened to me in my life. Because first of all, you know, he made it so interesting and so compelling to cover the NFL and to be like a national NFL reporter. That was so fun. And he also made it possible for ugly guys to go on TV. (laughs) And, you know, so I always thought that when I saw Will McDonough on TV, I think at first on CBS, I always used to think to myself, wow, which of these things is not like the other? Mm. You know, Will McDonough was this this craggy-faced Boston guy, newspaper man, 
But, you know, I think it was, I forget how many years ago, it was in the 80s, uh, but he made it possible for real reporters to go on TV. Well, there was Will, there was Mort, there was you, there was John Clayton, and that's about the end of the list. I guess we could include Fred Edelstein in there to a right. certain degree, yep. but there aren't many people who have done this job over a long period of time, and so I'm grateful to all of those people, each one of you. I've... I had the great honor to spend some time with Will McDonough and then get to know his sons. Mort I love, you I love, John Clayton I love. I mean, these are great people, and so I have a great respect for the people who did this before me, and I think that's very important for people to have. With Adam Schefter on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. So, Adam, take me to Ann Arbor, Michigan, hmm. when Rich Eisen was your boss. <laughs> oh, he's two years younger than me, or a year or two younger than no. me. No. Yes. Okay. And I was his boss, if anything, and he had a factual error on your podcast, Peter, and I corrected him. He said that he edited my game story from the Michigan-Seton Hall National Championship basketball game in April 1989. The only problem is I never wrote a game story from the Michigan-Seton Hall National Championship you game. You went to the game as a fan? My friends and I had the one of the greatest weekends of my life, with all due respect to my wife and my children. We did what college kids do we just went out and never slept and went to seattle it was one of the first trips ever to seattle and it was unbelievable we stayed in the hotel where michigan was we basically got tickets from the michigan ticket office like back in 1990 no one really wanted to travel to seattle so we bought tickets and then sold four tickets which financed our trip to go to seattle wow which was awesome and so my time at the Michigan Daily, and it was tremendous, expired in January of 1989. Michigan won the national championship in basketball in April of 89. Rich Eisen must be confusing the fact that he edited my game story on the Rose Bowl in January of 1989 oh, okay. when Michigan beat USC in what was, I think, Bowles' last Rose Bowl appearance, Bo Schembechler's Rose Bowl appearance, but I never covered the basketball team that won the national championship. I covered the basketball team in the spring of 1988. So, Rich is having some fun with the facts there. Peter. All right. Okay. We, we worked together. It was great. We were friendly in college, and he was incredibly talented and gifted and still love him to this day, but he never edited a game <laughs> story that I never wrote about the national championship game. Which reminds me, this was not something that I was going to ask you about, but yeah. I'm curious about it. So we're just coming off the Michigan-Ohio State game, mm. football game, and... Jim Harbaugh is there. And so now as a Michigan, a very proud Michigan alum, how long do you think Jim Harbaugh <laughs> is going to be the coach of the Michigan Wolverines? Well, as the people in Michigan are quick to point out, I didn't think he was leaving to San Francisco. And every time I tweet something about them, like, you're the guy that said he wasn't going to leave the <laughs> NFL. Okay, so I think that my Jim Harbaugh predictions are probably not very good and worthwhile. Saying that, I hope he stays at Michigan for a long, long time. I hope he stays there for a long enough time that they have like a 10-year war like he and uh, Bo Schembechler and Woody Hayes did back in the day. But how long will he stay there? I'll say this, Peter. I hope it's a long time, but I think like everybody else, you wonder, which is why you're asking the question. Well, here's why I wonder it. <laughs> because I think it's not coincidental that Jim Harbaugh has never stayed anywhere for a very long time. He wears on people. Yeah, yeah, but he can wear on people. But in college at Michigan, 
the athletes, the players are gone in three, four right, years. Right, right. Oh, well, I'm not even saying that. I'm not even saying administrators? that. Administrators? Uh, yeah, administrators. But but also, just in general, when I say he wears on people, I, I mean, a lot of coaches wear on people. Nick Saban wears on people. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Lane Kiffin you know goes what? somewhere. Mm-hmm. But I said, uh, yeah, I said to Mike Shanahan, we were, I asked him that Jim Harbaugh question at one point. I said, how long do you think he's going to be there for? And Mike said, huh, long time. Because... It's the best job in all of sports. That's what he said. That what he's done there and what he can do and the program he's put into place, it kind of perpetuates itself. No question. I mean, and the incredible job he has done in his early days, there's no question in my mind, if he does stay there for a long time yeah. and he establishes a beachhead, he could be the Nick Saban of the North. It'd be great to see. Listen, no question. I hope he's there a long time. My guess is at some point, just a guess, I don't know whether that's five years, 10 years, 15 years, if ever, he'll go back to the NFL I agree. and try to scratch that itch at some point to try to get a Super Bowl title like his brother John has. See, I think it's different, don't you, with Nick Saban? I think Nick Saban could be comfortable in college football for the rest of his life. Not saying that he may not go back to the NFL. And I thought it was very curious, the story about the Giants this year. You know, you can have plausible deniability. We never contacted the Giants, and I understand. You understand how all that stuff works. But I really think that one day, if somebody gives him the golden job, Saban could go back into the NFL. And I also think, I just had Drew Brees on here a few weeks ago, and we, we were talking about what would have happened, how football history would have been changed. Oh. If Nick Saban oh. got Drew Brees to come to Miami. I remember covering that story, and it was unbelievable because literally the Dolphins' doctors did not think his shoulder would hold up. Right. And Drew Brees might tell you different. I don't believe that he wanted to go to New Orleans at the time, although he did feel a calling there eventually, yep. right? And right. It was, it was during the Katrina time and whatnot. But I think in his, in his heart of hearts, he wanted to go to Miami. Right. And would have gone to Miami, and if Nick Saban had been there— Nick Saban and Drew Brees still might be doing business together, and the Dolphins might have a couple of extra. I remember, trophies. I remember the first NBC game when they got the uh, you know the the Sunday night package going into Thursday night. Remember the Thursday night opener, Miami at Pittsburgh, where Dante yep. Culpepper was the quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, and I kept thinking to myself, man, I bet in a while Saban is going to wish that he ended up getting Drew Brees. And by the way. Yeah. So instead of signing Drew Brees for no compensation, they traded a second-round draft pick to Minnesota for Dante Culpepper. Yeah. Think about that. It's yeah, amazing. Think about it. All right, Adam. So I've always thought that one of the interesting parts of your life that not many people know about is that you married a woman uh, named Sherry who is a 9-11 widow. And... I wondered, there was a really touching, compelling, beautiful story on the whole story this season on ESPN. And I wonder, can you share a little bit about how that marriage came to be and about your attachment basically now to 9-11 for the rest of your life? Well, it's a... uh... I mean, it's a huge part of our life, and, and as much of a part of it of my life as it is, it really defines her life to a large extent. I mean, her life was forever altered, and I say her, and I also think of the Mayo family, uh, the parents of Joseph Mayo, who lost their son, and then later on lost their other son five, six years after, 
which was something that we didn't have time for in that story. So they lost their son Joseph, then they lost their son Anthony. And you know, I think of my wife. She was 31 at the time, 32, 31. She had a year-old son. And can you imagine just dropping your spouse off at the ferry to take the ferry into work that day and then never, never come see some, him again? Like, that's it. And the, and the amazing part about that also, and there's so many amazing parts, but that day, Joseph had a meeting in Connecticut in the afternoon. And he... What floor did he work on? 104th floor, I believe. What was, time did he get to work? Well, well the, okay. Sherry and Devin, our son, and Riley, who was the dog who Riley uh, is gone now, and we love Riley, but Joseph wanted Sherry. He had never taken the ferry to work before. And on 9-11, he took the ferry that day, and he said to Sherry, can you and drop me off here? The ferry leaves at 6 a.m. And she's like, I got to have to wake up Devin. I got to bring Riley. I want you to do this. So for the first and only time, first, wow. last, and only time, she she and she and got up Devin. They got dressed. They drove Joseph to the ferry. They told him they loved him. He got on the ferry and the rest. But the part that I was about to tell you was, and this is to me the amazing part about life, he had an afternoon meeting in Connecticut. And he couldn't decide whether to go into the office first or whether to just go straight to Connecticut that day. And he decided to go into the office first to get some work done rather than going straight to Connecticut. One simple decision like that. It's just unbelievable to think about. And, and by the way... How your life would have changed. Oh, my gosh. Everyone's life. Uh, like our daughter, I said to my... You know, when my daughter... This is also amazing. But when we did that piece for ESPN and uh, Dominique Goodrich did the producing of the job... Uh, the story, she did a great job. My wife was tremendous in the interviews and, and uh, we spent months thinking about the lines that we wanted to use in that story because it was so delicate and sensitive and real. When the story was finally done, it occurred to me that our daughter, Dylan, who's eight years old, knew nothing about 9-11. She knew that Joe had lost his life, that Joe died, that Sherry's first husband died. But she had no idea how. And so we had a film crew at our house a couple of different times for the interviews to take some footage of our family for the piece. And Dylan was so excited to be on TV. Like, she was over the moon, jumping up and down, and she had a friend over. And I took Sherry aside that Friday night, and I said, I want to show you the story. She hadn't seen it yet. And I played it for her, and it was very emotional, obviously. And so I said, uh, let's show it to Dylan. And Dylan was with her friend. Dylan, come see the story. She, and she says to her friend, you want to see me on TV? Come on, come on. Like, And she comes running into the room all excited. She's going to see the piece. And the piece starts. And you can almost see the color and mood just go out of her face from the get-go. I mean, it was unbelievable to the point where at the end of it, she was hysterical, crying. And she could not wrap her arms around the fact that somebody could fly a plane into a building. Like eight years old, and she was insistent that he had to be drunk because there's no way that anybody could do that. And she was hysterical. She really was overwhelmed by it. I mean, as you can imagine, you were learning about this for the first time. And so I explained to her, I said, this was a very bad thing done by very bad people, but 
if this hadn't happened, you wouldn't be here. And she looked at me and she said, why couldn't mom just have had me with Joe? <laughs> wow. Out of the mouths of babes. <laughs> Is that unbelievable? But you know what? I bet over oh the years, God. I bet over the years, you and Sherry had been wondering, how are we going to tell? Well, I'll, I'll tell you something else, and I, and I have it on my phone right here. And this is something else that I remember. Because I had pitched this story to ESPN on the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. I said, hey, if, if you want to do this, got a story that might be worth doing. And if you're not, no problem, but I want to pitch it. And so they decided not to do it then. And then I pitched it again this year. And they were kind of lukewarm. But there was one guy, a producer who used to be the head of Sunday Countdown, named Greg Jewell, who now is the head of one of the heads of the features department at ESPN. And Greg Jewell signed off on doing this and, and really backed it and was the biggest supporter of the piece in general. He sent me a text. Literally, it was that Thursday. I was at ESPN. The, a text before the story ran? Yeah, I, I had not seen the story. Right. Okay? I had not seen the story. So I was waiting to see what they created. And you really don't know how it's going to come out. Like, I had written a bunch of tracks that I, I, I can't tell you how much thought I put into making the lines just perfect. Right. Like, because it was so sensitive. And so I knew that they were putting it together and we were rushing at the end and I was sitting on the Sports Center set that Thursday, which would have been September 8th. And I looked down and there's a text that pops to my phone from Greg Drew, and it says, leaving edit, cried several times. One thing to realize, your kids will watch when they're 50 and cry. Your grandkids will watch. This piece will live forever. Wow. That's tremendous. And I thought That's that tremendous. was just something. And I said, okay, boy, this is going to be something. And then I went in and saw the piece that night. And uh, obviously, I thought it was pretty moving and powerful. You're listening to the MMQB Podcast. This is Adrian Wojnarowski of The Vertical. For candid conversations with the biggest names around the NBA, be sure to check out our podcast network, which includes The Vertical Podcast with Woj, the Vertical Podcast with J.J. Reddick, and the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix, all at thevertical.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Movement Watches was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. Their goal was to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality, minimalist products at revolutionary prices. We get it. Holiday shopping can be tough, very anxious at times. But thanks to Movement Watches, all that gift-giving anxiety can disappear with the press of a button. These watches make the perfect purchase for just about anyone in your life, guy or girl. And remember, they start at only $95. My Movement Watch is only $95, and it's awesome. It looks like it should be $495. You've heard me talk about Movement Watches, and I'm sure you got yourself one. Now let's finish your holiday shopping and get a movement watch for someone on your list. They start at just $95. If you were going to buy a watch at a department store, you're looking to spend at least four to 500 bucks. Movement figured out that by selling online, they were able to cut out the middleman in retail markup, providing the best possible price. Now here's the best part. You get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movementwatches.com slash MMQB. That's mvmtwatches.com slash MMQB. 
This watch has a really clean design. Seriously, I've been getting compliments on mine ever since I put it on just three short weeks ago. People love it. I love it. Now's the time to step up your watch game. Go to movementwatches.com, mvmtwatches.com slash mmqb. Join the movement. So you have now in your life at ESPN, you have had the great fortune to work with some really good people, some talented people. I think America would be very interested to know about the influence that Chris Mortensen has had on you Mm. and also how Mort is doing. I mean, it was fairly public that Mort had hoped to get back on the air this season and as of now, he's not regularly on the air. And so I, I, I guess I would, I would ask you first about the influence he's had on your career and on your life. Well, there are a few people in our industry that have influenced me. And I would put, I would put you in that category. Thank you. And I mean that. Mort deserves his own category because of how closely we've worked together, how much he's meant to me, what he's meant to the business and it's funny because when, when I left NFL Network, I think at that point, that, like, they didn't think that anybody else could have two information. And it, at that time, it was an unthinkable idea, which is kind of still comical. a little bit of a cottage industry. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of like, you know, every network had one guy and no one would ever double up. And why would anyone do that? And so Mort was kind enough to sign off on that. Right. If he hadn't signed off on that, and Seth Markman, our boss, has told me this many times, that if Mort hadn't given the hiring his blessing, it wouldn't have happened. Like, he could have said, no, I don't want this. This is my turf, my terrain. I don't want anybody else treading on it. But he was gracious enough and kind enough to sign off on it. And not only did he sign off on it, but he was incredibly gracious and kind to the point where I have always tried to return that to him. So whenever we've worked together and we've gotten together headlines for Sunday or news stories, I've been at ESPN for seven and a half years now. It has ever been the case where I said, hey, I'm going to do a headline on Sunday on Drew Brees. And then Mort called in later to our producer and said, I'm going to do something on Drew Brees. And it was the same note. I've always relinquished. Always. I've always tried to be different because he deserves that. He has uh, been... The yin to my yang. Like, I am wound up and intense and serious, and Mort is just not. You know, he's, he's one of the funniest people I know. He's got a tremendous sense of humor that people don't even know. And he has kept me loose. And that, that is one of the biggest things that I miss. I miss having my good friend there, my partner in crime, but somebody that just kind of keeps me loose. Like, even yesterday... Taping this on Tuesday, November 29th, I believe it is. It is, yeah. And it was Monday afternoon. And, and Monday's a long day at ESPN. You get in there real early. And Sunday night was a long, you know, Sunday's a long day. And I love it. But I know on Monday, Mort would usually come in around 1, 2 in the afternoon. And Mort was like human coffee. Like it was just a little jolt. And it kind of helped get me through the rest of the day. And I was thinking yesterday afternoon, as I think most days when I'm there, but I could use seeing Mort right now. And he kept everything loose. And... On Sundays, when we watch the games in what we call the War Room, you know, 12 giant TV screens, and this is my eighth season at ESPN, Mort is the soul of that room. Mort is the guy that keeps everybody laughing in there. 
Mort's the only guy that can make fun of Chris Berman the entire time. <laughs> you know, like last year, a Geico commercial comes on with this real hairy guy getting out of the bathtub, and Mort looks up at the TV, and he goes, boom! <laughs> <laughs> and everybody bursts into laughter. And only Mort could do that, and has done that for years. And uh, he's missed terribly. He's in our thoughts constantly. We pray for him regularly, and... We look forward to the day that he comes back to work at us full-time. I didn't even know he was coming back part-time. I was on the phone with a team on a Friday afternoon, and they're like, hey, there's Mort on TV. I'm like, what are you talking about, Mort on TV? Look up at ESPN. There's Mort. I'm like, I had no idea that he was going to do it. I'm like, call him. I'm like, you don't tell me that you're going to be on? And he said, I didn't want to say anything in case he wasn't feeling good enough that he couldn't go on. But he went on. He's been doing Fridays. Hopefully, there'll be a lot more Fridays and Sundays and Mondays and whatever else he can do. He currently is at his home in Arkansas. Is yep. that correct? That's correct. Yep. And um, still undergoing some treatment. And, yep. Yeah. It's a it's an endless fight, and he's been a brave warrior. And we uh, hope he continues battling very hard, which I know he will. And he's had a great perspective and outlook on all this. And everybody's pulling for him really hard. With Adam Schefter on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. So, Adam, what people wouldn't know about you is that you're a totally closeted. NBA aholic, <laughs> you do you do this ridiculous, uh, you, you know you do daily fantasy NBA games. Tell me how you got into basketball and whether we might ever see you actually on the sidelines with a microphone up with LeBron James. Well, I'll tell you this: the funny thing is, I've I, I never had any interest in the NBA. Well, growing up, I did. Growing up, I loved watching the Knicks and Bernard King and. Love that. And I would listen to Marv Albert in my room on the radio because nobody's better doing a game than Marv Albert. But literally from the time I was in, I would say, freshman in college, I lost track, forgot, and couldn't care less about the NBA. And then I don't even know how this started, but a couple of years ago, I played these $3 DraftKings games. Like, just started doing it. NBA, I'm like, oh, let me try this. And I always admired you for the passion you had in baseball. And I had a passion for all these sports and I lost all that because you're so consumed. You don't have time. It's like with, with people say, did you exactly. see that big college football game? Did no. Say, no, because you're getting ready I, for I, got a life. I actually went to a movie last Saturday. I went to Allied. And I mean, you know. So you, hard. Yeah, you've got to occasionally be able to scratch out a little time where you say, I'm not thinking about but, the but, NFL but, but right you're, now. But you're great with bait, like baseball. I always said, how does Peter go to these baseball games and follow bait? Like, I thought yeah. that's awesome. So in a way, maybe I was jealous of that. And I don't even know how this started. But I said, oh, let me try this DraftKings NBA thing. I didn't know a single player. But then you start studying the statistics, like a stock chart almost. And you start programming your lineup and I, I did it the first night it was like right after the Super Bowl a couple of years ago my wife walked into our bedroom I had an NBA game on she looked at me kind of funny second night she walks in the bedroom looks at me kind of funny NBA game on third night she walked in she looked at me like I had started smoking cigarettes she said since when do you watch basketball games and I started watching when I started playing some of these daily fantasy games and I love it as I, I kid around with some of our producers there's one guy at ESPN, we make out lineups every day together. I, I say, this is my cigarette break. I take a five-minute <laughs> break, and I fill out my NBA DFS $3 lineup. And it's it's literally become one of my biggest hobbies. I don't have many hobbies. Yeah. And I, I love it. And I, I watch NBA. And so ESPN is aware of my interest. And so they asked, hey, any interest in doing any sideline reporting for any NBA games? <laughs> and I'm like, yes! Because as you know, Peter... When you get to do something outside your sphere of work, 
it really fills you with adrenaline. It, it's ener- it's energizing. It's yeah. refreshing. It's it's exciting. And so I even bumped into uh, Tim Corrigan, the head of NBA stuff, in the ESPN Cafe on Monday this week. And, I, and he saw me and I said, I'm like, hey, when are we starting this? He's like, send me your schedule, send me your dates. So I'm just trying to figure out to juggle with football when we could do this because I do want to stick that microphone into LeBron James' face and ask him some questions about what were you thinking on that triple-double? You know, whatever it is. I have no idea. But you know what? I'm coming after Woj. I'm coming after <laughs> Woj, who I also love. I had dinner with Woj in August. Yeah. Uh, just to compare notes because he's he's prolific at what he does. And I wanted yeah. to hear how he does what he does and talk a little bit of NBA. But more than anything, just how he does his crap because I'm always curious about how people who are great at what they do do what they do. Yeah, he's really, really good. And we had about a three-hour dinner, and it was fantastic. And by the way, he's, he's also become a good friend. Yeah. Uh, finishing up with Adam Schefter and the MMQB podcast with Peter King. So, Adam, um, sometimes I, I, I mean, I ask a lot of people this question who are associated with football because I think the future is so murky. But are you worried about the future of football? And 20 years from now, will football still be Boomtown or will it be beset by a lot of the problems that it's seeing right now? I don't worry about it, but I am curious about it. Because, look, boxing at one point was... King. Baseball at one point was... King. No, Sears at one point was king, right? No, nothing stays the same. So I think that we are very fortunate to be covering a sport during its golden years, during the height of its glory... And we'll see how long football can sustain that. that. That's not up to us. That's up to other people on, on Park Avenue to go figure out how to sustain the popularity of the sport. And they've done some good things, and they've done some things I wouldn't agree with at all. But to me, I'm just thankful that I get to cover it right now. We'll see how far they can extend this run. You have questions. I have questions. Everybody's got questions. I, I think there are some real threats to the sport. I think it's real. Uh, do I think this sport 10, 20 years from now will be as popular as it is today? I don't know that. I think we're already seeing some signs of decay, some disconcerting signals. Maybe that's just everybody up in arms. But the numbers on it are still so much bigger than anything else that it's still so far ahead of everything that I'm not consumed by worrying about it at all. I'm more focused on just doing my job, trying to do it as well as I can, and we'll let everything else forward well I, I always think this there's still 170 million people despite the decline in ratings 170 million people that's almost half the people in the united states who at some point this year have watched an nfl well, Peter, game. I, I, we brought up the fancy element and now that i play fancy i'm in two fancy football leagues uh, i'm just telling you that that changes the way you watch the game and the people who do it love it and it used to be i've been in this business for almost 27 years now Used to be people that would stop and say, "Hey, how are the Cowboys going to do this weekend? How right. how are, how are the Giants now? Do it's this how weekend? is Ezekiel Elliott going to do should this I, weekend? Should I start Marvin Jones or right. Anquan Bolden? Right. Yeah. Okay. And that's that's where the sport is gone, and that's what it's about. I know players don't want to hear that, but I think that that has driven the popularity of the sport in recent years. I really do. Adam Schefter, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. You will be having a podcast very, very soon, and I really look forward to uh, the weekly download and listening to you and your guests. Peter, thank you for joining me in the car on a rainy day in the parking lot <laughs> of, of a Long Island train station in this glamorous surrounding. <laughs> it's the MMQB Podcast.
Hi, boys and girls. It's Tony Kornheiser reminding you to subscribe and listen to my daily podcast where we talk about everything from sports to politics to the impending animal revolution. And remember, you can listen to new and archived episodes wherever you listen to podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Hey, everybody, listen up. You don't want to miss this. Make sure you remember these four letters, MMQB. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office, especially with all that traffic and trying to find parking. It'll be packed with everyone mailing holiday gifts and holiday packages. So do what I do. Use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you would do at the post office, I mean everything, you can now do right from your desk with Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com doesn't close. You can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. Now here's the part I told you to remember. Right now for my listeners, sign up for Stamps.com and use my promo code MMQB for this special offer. A four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Within minutes, you'll be printing postage right from your desk. It is simple. Go to stamps.com and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in MMQB for your excellent discount. Don't forget the microphone at the top of the screen. That's stamps.com and enter MMQB. Back on the podcast with Katie Nolan. Look at you. You're all happy. So happy. Host of Garbage Time with Katie Nolan. Katie, we're here at your studio in New York. Thank you for joining the MMQB podcast with Peter King. I'm sure this is the pinnacle for you. This is it. I retire tomorrow. Good. (laughs) You're half my age. Really? You're 29 years old and I'm 59. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. Like, one of the highlights of my youth was the Red Sox winning the pennant in 1967. Wow. That was long before you were born. It was a good year, 1967. It really was. One of my faves. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the business Mm. and some football topics. But before we do that, let's just get into kind of your youth. Mm. How did you get in? Which I'm still in, you know. Well, you're in in your adolescence (laughs) now. Uh So how did you get so into sports what made you huge into sports and blah 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 yeah well I'd say you know being born in uh in a suburb of Boston Framingham uh, and having two parents who were born and raised in Newton Massachusetts well actually my dad was born in Japan but that's he's a war baby you just have it in your blood you have to love Boston sports and I mean I was born in a time of you know Boston sports being terrible and and daunting and so painful every year but yet you still root for the Red Sox every game you still root for the Bruins every game Uh, my brother played hockey he went to uh, private school for hockey I went to public school because I wasn't very skilled at any sport did you Uh, play sports I played softball I was the varsity pitcher my senior year I wasn't very good I was okay uh, I had a very John Lester quality in me that I uh, I overthrew first a lot whenever I tried to throw, and so I would just never – I got the yips about it, and I never threw. Um, so watching him is very – it hurts me because I know what's going through his head on a very much smaller Could scale. Could you throw it a second? Yeah, because you know that, like, the center fielder's right there anyway because in softball in high school they were playing yeah. – they weren't playing deep. 
but so my brother played hockey. So I, I grew up in, I was a rink rat. I was always at the rink for his games and I hated it because as a, the younger, the youngest, cause I just have one older brother, you want to be the center of attention all the time. And when you have to go to his games, but he's not coming to your dance recitals, you just hate hockey just because you can. Um, and then once I got old enough, I started to realize like, oh, just from being around it, I've absorbed it, and I think I love it now, which is a very interesting moment of discovery for me. But I would just say my family's always been a huge sports fans. But there's no better sports city than Boston. I mean, maybe Chicago could make the argument, but I won't allow it. I think it's Boston. What's your favorite Fenway moment? Well, this is tough because my greatest, like not arguable greatest Fenway moment was, uh, was recent. So it was when the Red Sox won at Fenway, uh, the World Series. I was there. I got to go into the locker room for the champagne celebration, which I thought I was going to enjoy. It was very uncomfortable. Because I was like, Cause you, you didn't have the goggles? I'm like, none of you know me. Oh, I have yeah. no right to be here. Yeah. I, someone did me a favor, and I got to come in, but I'm alone. I was just watching everyone celebrate this amazing athletic achievement I had no part in. Yeah. And so I just left after a while. But it was very cool to be there, and we stayed really late at Fenway, and I got to, like, stand on the mound while it's still said on the screen that they won the World Series. So that was great. But, like, my – I mean, I have so many memories from, like, a childhood standpoint. There was a time I was a big Manny Ramirez fan, and I brought a sign that said I loved him and gave it to a bat boy who said he was going to go back to the locker room and give it to Manny. I don't think he did, <laughs> but I really believed it. I was like, Manny's going to see my sign. Uh, so that's, like, one of my earlier memories of – of Fenway. How about you and the Pats? How about them? I'm a, I was a latecomer to football. It's my favorite sport now, but I was a, pretty much a latecomer. I didn't – my mom hated the Patriots because she went on a date, whatever it was, before Foxborough. And when they had metal bleachers, she went on a date. It was raining. It was cold. And she said she sat in like a puddle and watched a football game, which she didn't even care about. And she's like, from that day on, I just was anti. She hated the Patriots. She's back now. We've got her back. But How could you not be back after the I, last I know, right? 16 it's, years? It's tough. I know, and she loves Tom Brady. My grandmother has such a crush on Tom Brady that it's my goal. She actually just got diagnosed with cancer. It's my goal to get her to someday meet Tom Brady before she – I don't want to say she's going to die because she's my grandma, so I hope she never does. But I, she's got to meet Tom Brady. She is so in love with Tom Brady. I got her a Tom Brady Well, you Brady know that doll. everybody on the New England Patriots listens to the MMQB podcast yeah. with Peter King religiously. Good. So I have a feeling that it's going to happen. It needs to happen. I got her like <laughs> Patriots footy pajamas for Christmas last year. She was thrilled. And a little Tom Brady doll. She loved it. She's gonna, I think she thinks that they're going to get married. And I don't see why not. So why do you think this team that you sort of grew to love Let's try to figure this out. How old were you when they won their first Super Bowl? Oh. oh. January 2002. I was February 2002. a sophomore in high school. Yeah. I think. Was that a big moment at your school that weekend? That yeah. That the Patriots I mean, won the Super Bowl? Yeah. It was in that sort of moment where Boston was starting to be like, oh, we can, like, this is big. We can win stuff. That was like parades, the duck boats. That was like new. Yeah. To us. So, like, that was very exciting. But I wasn't a huge Patriots fan then. It wasn't my sport, you know? Baseball was my sport. Yeah. Um, but I will say when the when the Red Sox won, I was in – for the first time, I was in Boston. The second time, I was in New York. And that was my favorite because 
Why, sticking it up their rear ends? Yeah. 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 I was in college in New York, and there were a lot of Boston kids at Hofstra, apparently. Do you remember the the Aaron Boone home run off Wakefield? Yes, vaguely. So, yeah, I was at that game. Ooh. And as the ball – I was at the Buckner game in 86 also. But the Aaron Boone game, as the ball came off his bat, I was there with – an agnostic, a guy who was a baseball fan, friend of mine, but didn't care who won or lost. And as soon as the ball got hit, I said, let's go. I never saw the ball fall. I was in the concourse at Yankee Stadium when that ball fell. And we beat everybody out of the stadium because Probably we smart. jogged to the car. Yeah. But I can't take great, huge moments of heartbreak. I know. There's only one team that it really bothers me when they lose and why I kind of go into twitter radio silence when they lose or something i can't i just it's just hard to deal with sometimes who the The socks socks? socks, yeah yeah Yeah, it's bad it's bad but i was in italy for that for the um when we were down to the yankees uh three games to nothing i was in italy and we had given up we were like oh that's it what were you doing uh i was my brother was studying abroad in uh florence and so we took a family trip for two weeks to just we went to see him. We went to Venice. We went to That's Rome. That's cr- you were there. You were in Italy at the time that the Red Sox made so the comeback. So we went. We went down three nothing, <laughs> and we were like, "Okay, well, that's it. Like, goodbye to our hopes of the Red Sox." My dad is like a infamously bails on them yeah. the second things start to go wrong. Right. He's not like the we still got this. He's yeah. the screw them. I knew they were gonna lose. Yeah. And so then we wake. We didn't even try to watch the game that night. The fourth right. game. And we woke up that the was next a good morning. Game, by the way. I know. I've yeah. seen it since. But I yeah. we woke up the next day and it was like, Oh, we won. Yeah. Then we tried to find the game the next night and the next night and then we were like, it was amazing. But I still to this day I wish I was in Boston for it. I wasn't. Where were you when they won the the fourth game? In Rome. In, you were, huh? Mm-hmm. And you watched that one, I would assume. Yeah. How did, it wasn't how did you... the time like the time zones were all it was like really I think it was early in the morning. Yeah. So I mean, how do you find a baseball game in Rome? Oh my God. We had dictionaries out asking oh. I mean we just at one point just kept saying American baseball, American baseball and so many places were like, We don't even have a way to show it to you because yeah. this wasn't like So then what happened? And, we found one small bar, had no food. We were all starving, but we sat and we watched. Wow. Yeah, it was wow. a it was an interesting experience. And you're right. That had to be about 4 o'clock in the morning. It was But there early. would be places open at that time. In yeah. Rome. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. I was like 18. With Katie Nolan on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. So, Katie, let's talk a little bit of football. Okay. All right. You came on my radar I guess a couple of years ago when you savaged me over Darren Sharper. <laughs> it was a savaging. It was a little bit. It was a savaging. Do you remember what the video was called? No. What was it called? It's Peter King of the Idiots. It was a really bad <laughs> pun. <laughs> okay. So you have to tell me. You have to tell me. You see my opinion that I think football players should be judged only on football no mm-hmm. matter what else happens off the field. So – how do you work yourself into such a rage over that one? Let's hear it. Come on, give me your give me your creative process. Well, so the first thing, to be completely honest with you, because yeah. you told me to be honest, yeah. the first thing was that, like, my first thought was, why is he choosing this hill to die on? Why? Because it wasn't, like, I don't think a lot of people were talking Can about I it Can yeah, I tell you why? Can I tell you why? I'd love to know why. It's a very simple reason. Because if we are going to, there's 48 people who sit in that room. Mm. And if we're going to choose to sit in that room, in my opinion, and some of my selectors disagree with me, 
my opinion is that we ought to stand for what we believe in. And I believe that football players and football coaches should be judged for their football. Yeah. And not for whatever else happens off the field. And I get that. Yeah. For me, what worked me into such a rage is that I think if we go down that road where we separate athlete and criminal for any athlete that has been convicted or whatever criminal activity, it it sort of perpetuates this idea of athletes being above the law. If we're going to say that even if you've drugged and raped several women in several states and are now serving an 18-year federal prison sentence because of that, will still honor you, that to me is like, well, this is why people coming up that are athletes are like, well, I can do whatever I want. I'll still get in the Hall of Fame as long as I'm really good at football. And I think too often there's this narrative that being really good at a sport redeems you for being a really piece of shit human off the field. Uh, and I think that it's it's time now that we start to have conversations that are, are try to change that. I think part of my responsibility that I feel I have once I got this job and this platform is to try to help change things to I'm not trying to say if you you know stole a chapstick at CVS when you were 12 you shouldn't be able to be in the Hall of Fame but I think that if you've if you're convicted of a crime you're serving a jail sentence which he wasn't at the time of your tweet but to me just the crime of rape is so heinous and the stories of how it happened and what he admitted to is so heinous that I I it's hard for me to picture you know having him up on stage at the Hall of Fame and honoring him with a little asterisk of, yeah, he did that awful thing, but how good was he at football? Just seems dangerous to me. So that's why I got angry. Okay, so just tell me now how you feel about how should the Pro Football Hall of Fame or Halls of Fame in general treat, in your opinion, off-field conduct, and should it be a factor in whether players get considered or elected to the Hall? I think it should. Um, I think that you have a point when you say there's a slippery slope, which felonies keep you out, which felonies don't. I think that there's enough. I, I would like to think I can trust the judgment of the people in that room enough to know that they can use their discretion of what is a heinous crime. The way I see it is if you're going to bring your child to the Hall of Fame, which is really what Hall of Fames are for, because at this point we have the internet. So Hall of Fames are becoming... I hate to say this because I know you love the Hall of Fame, but to me they're becoming more and more kind of useless. Mm-hmm. And eventually you're going to get to a point where there's so many people in there, like it's just going to be ridiculous. They mean less now. So to me, if you're going to bring your child there and show them all the greats of a sport, if there's a, a criminal in there that that was convicted of a crime that makes you very uncomfortable to tell your child about, I think we don't put that person in the Hall of Fame. I think the NFL has put itself in a really difficult position. I know the Hall of Fame and the NFL are different, but to speak as if they're sort of the same in this situation, the NFL has put itself in a very difficult position with its personal conduct policy. I think a lot of people don't understand exactly what was collectively bargained for in terms of fans. I think they like to blame Goodell because he's the face of these things. I think a lot of people don't really understand what Goodell's role is. I don't think there's a general understanding that he's sort of there to take the heat off of the owners, and that's why people hate him so much. But I think with the personal conduct policy and this sort of naming himself judge, jury, and executioner, I think that Rogers put himself in a difficult position where now if we ask him and to do that properly and he's not equipped to, he can't say, well, I'm not the court because he sort of made himself that in this league. Uh, and I think it, there's so few wins, especially with all the issues with domestic violence and everything else off the field, 
that it would be so easy in my eyes I, when I see a situation like Darren Sharper being nominated for the Hall of Fame. I think it's so easy to just say Darren Sharper is eligible this year. We will not be nominating him because the Hall of Fame does not believe in honoring men who have been convicted of serial rape. And I think the world would applaud and say, great choice. I really don't think anybody, maybe I'm wrong, correct me if I am, I don't think anybody would say, well, that's not fair. I think we should nominate him anyway. It's a low enough bar to say if you're currently in jail, you can't be in our See, Hall that of is interesting to say if a guy is currently in jail that he should not be considered for the Hall of Fame. I'd probably pretty strongly consider that. But I just believe that in general, you know, as we have discussed, there are some states in the United States that consider animal abuse a heinous crime, a very serious crime, and it, and it is a serious crime. It isn't anything like serial rape. And so I just have a real problem with what crimes get you automatically excluded and what crimes don't. That's what, in my opinion, is the hardest thing because it's easy to say, okay, the 48 people in there will exercise collective good judgment, but I don't want the judgment of 48 people on what they believe socially Hmm. or what they believe legally or what they believe criminally or morally or morally Mm -hmm. should be a material part of your decision-making process about one guy makes the hall of fame. Do you think that there are writers and, and, and other people in that room that don't have a bias against a player because of whatever it is, the, an interaction they had with them once. Maybe that player was always really mean to that writer. Oh, well, you that think came they up... don't bring that anyway? Probably so. But I think, you know, that was a big topic of conversation with Charles Haley. Mm-hmm. I hate to say it. I mean, I, I laugh at stuff like that. I mean, I really do. Because what happens on the outside is that people... And I can't tell you whether the guy from Detroit or the woman from San Francisco or the guy from Seattle. I can't tell you what's in their heart. I I just, because I don't know. And I don't, as a rule, converse with guys and say, what do you think? Or how do you feel about this? And what do you think? I mean, a few guys I talk to, because I've known them for a long time, it's just a natural course of conversation. It Mm. comes up. But in general... I just laughed so much when everybody was telling me a couple of years ago, you're not putting Charles Haley in the Hall of Fame because he was a turd. Yeah, he was a turd. (laughs) As it turns out, he was a mentally ill turd. Mm. And that's a terrible thing to say. Charles Haley is, is not a bad human being or anything like that. But he has admitted he's written a book. He talked about uh, his mental illness and, uh, and I feel for him. He had a really, he's had a terrible time in life with it. And he overcame it to the point where he still could be a great football player. But everybody said, oh, you're not voting for Haley because he was an idiot. I mean, first of all, I voted for Haley. But second of all, people just, and and again, I'm one person. I don't know what the other 47 do. Right. But it's so easy to say, well, you didn't vote for him because you hate him or he treated you lousy. I mean, that just, it doesn't happen. I can't say it doesn't happen with everybody, but I can just tell you, being in that room and talking to some of the guys and women who do the job, I just simply don't believe that there's an overwhelming part of the sentiment in that room that says, in essence, I'm not voting for this guy because I hate him or because I saw what the way he treated people. 
It just doesn't happen that way. Now, the other part of it, of how to deal with the whole criminal aspect of it, I think it's a good debate to have. And I think, I mean, the one thing that I will say about you and your pieces, however many you did about this, and really, and also about Ray Rice and domestic violence, I think that we should consider this stuff. We shouldn't just act blindly and say, well, this is the way we've always done it. I feel that way about that. I feel that way about the media today. Because, I mean, that's one of the other things I wanted to get into you about, so we might as well do it now. (laughs) So, Katie. Yes, Peter. Give me your view about what you think is the biggest disconnect between younger people in the media and people like me who've been doing it for a long time who you know I'm 59 years old you're 29 but what do you think you is the biggest you say 26 just like knock a few years off of it well me. how you about if you say just... I'm 49 then perfect is that okay because I'm so young looking you are and you've yeah, got such a young spirit come on and I'm an old soul I'm spunky we meet halfway so what's the biggest thing that you believe when you look at the media in general mm. that is wrong that needs to be fixed that you hope that you can fix um, or help? That's a very good question. I think off the top of my head, I think there's a lot of people who are in a rush to get an opinion out or a take out, um, I think, across a number of different areas of this profession. There's a time has become very important. You got to be the first to say it. You want to be the first to react. You want to be, there's only so many opinions you can have on a story. You want to be the first to point something out. And I think there's a rush to chime in and there isn't as much a focus on, well, let me make sure I have all the facts right. Let me make sure I know exactly what I'm talking about. Let me make sure, let's just say as an example, when I go on TV and discuss domestic violence, I'm not just talking out of my ass because it's very irresponsible and could have actual issues could come from what you say on TV if you're speaking in an uneducated way on such a difficult topic. I think that for me, I'm, I guess I'm a little spoiled because I have a once a week show, so I don't have to worry about you're live in five minutes and you need to talk about this thing. You're John Oliver. Yeah, essentially. Just as talented, just as rich, and just as John Oliver is really, really good at that job. He's fantastic at that job. job? I didn't think he was going to be that good. I know. And Samantha B is the same way. Fantastic. Samantha B, I never thought she would be that good because I never thought she was that funny on the Jon Stewart show. But those two people are unbelievably good. And 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 part part of that comes, I think, in their comfort. Sam is so comfort when comfortable when she gives her monologues, and she yeah. just you can tell the mannerisms she's using is probably the way she speaks in real life. And she's just so easy to watch because you feel like you're talking to your friends. Anyway, uh, what was I talking about? Oh, once a week. So I don't have to worry really about you've got to talk about something right now. I so I make it's so important to me. The number one thing you can ask anyone who's sitting in this room because they'll tell you. I go out. I do too much research. I need to know everything before I feel comfortable saying a word about it because I don't want to say the wrong thing, especially with really difficult topics. Which is sometimes when we get serious on the show, it's about difficult topics. And so, like this week on the show, we talked about Josh Brown and how. You know, the, the easy thing for fans to do is to say, punish him and get him out of the league and and to feel like they've accomplished something and done the right thing by punishing the domestic abuser. And what they don't realize is that, you know, in in for people who have studied domestic violence and how the effect it has on the victim, because it's such a personal crime between the person who is 
perpetrating the violence and the and the victim, punishment doesn't work the same way as it would in other crimes. And it also it, it has the potential to re-victimize the victim. And I think that like we're sports media. We don't know these things. Right. It's, we've never gone through, you know, counseling for domestic violence victims. We've never had to deal with that. Just like the it's completely different, but the court of I learned all about the court of appeals because of deflate gate. Like uh, this isn't sports stuff, so I don't expect everyone to know it, but I think that if you if you were to ask me like you did what I think the biggest issue with the media today is I think that we're all in such a rush to say it, we aren't in a rush to make sure it's correct first. Right. I guess talking about Josh Brown, I thought it was I can tell you, and, and again, I've not even asked him this question, but just having been around the Mara family for 31 years now, what I have found about them is that, and again, this is, I don't mean this in terms of a generalization of a faith, but a lot of people who I know who are Catholic think that they can help change you. Mm. think that they can have such an influential effect on your life. Wellington Marrow was convinced that he could help Lawrence Taylor and that, you know, if we do this and we're going to help him and everything like that, not that he was ever going to get rid of him anyway because he was great, but he was convinced he could help him. And I truly believe that John Mara knew that Josh Brown was undergoing counseling, serious counseling, and he was coming from such a deep place mm-hmm. that... He, I, I don't know whether he was making progress. I don't know anything right. like that. I guess where I would come down on Josh Brown in particular in this general, in general, is that I think after he did what he did at the Pro Bowl this year in banging on his wife's door and being drunk and unreasonable and, and they all moved that her stuff, the team and they her moved her rooms, to yeah. another room, yeah. I think that would say, okay, well, I'm sure in the counseling they say, if you've been drinking, stay away from your wife, or just stay away from your wife, period. You're about to get divorced anyway, blah, blah, blah. But there has to come a time when a team has to say, we've done what we can. And also, if you want to help him, just like really mean that when you say it. Like, yeah. yes, he was in counseling, but he was in anger management counseling. And and again, if you know about domestic violence or you've studied it, that's actually not recommended for domestic abusers because if you think about it, anger they're very good at managing their anger. Otherwise, they'd be taking it out on everybody. They only take it out on their spouse or on their partner. So it's not about anger management. There's actual specific domestic violence counseling he should be in. And I I'm also one of those people that likes to think we can change. Like I want, I wanted Ray Rice to get another shot after he went through everything because I thought he was one of the only athletes that we all saw what he did. And I hate that it had to come to that, but he was the only one who couldn't say he didn't do it because we all saw him do it. And so to see, I think to see him get a second chance would have taught younger athletes that, hey, I can screw up, but I'm not going to get kicked to the curb and be completely you know, Abandoned. and I yeah. think that would make people more willing to say, yes, I have a problem, you know, as opposed to if you admit you have Agree a problem, totally. you're out of the league. Like that's yeah. not a good message to be sending to people. Yeah. That's why I think like I admire Brandon Marshall so much. And I think he's so important. I know he's very vocal about mental health issues and how that affected him in the early parts of his career. And I, I, I wish there was like a thousand Brandon Marshalls in the league because I think it's such an important conversation to have. I just, when coaches say we're trying to help him, we think he's getting the help he needs. It's a different sport, but like a role as Chapman on the Cubs. There was a New York Times story a couple months ago that, yeah, he's in counseling. He's been to one session. Mm-hmm. And so you can't say he's getting help and then not really focus on 
making sure he's getting help. Right. I mean, it's 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 an easy out to say, um, but I think that you know, if coaches and owners really think they can help these men, then they kind of have a what do you think if you had one if you had something you could do to improve how the NFL handles domestic violence, what would you say? Or maybe the better question is, if you were sitting down having lunch with Lisa Friel. I thought you were going to say Roger Goodell. I was yeah. like, no. Yeah. Please, if no. you're sitting down having lunch with Lisa Friel yeah. and advising her, this is a woman who's had her career I know. in this business. I know. What are they not doing that you think they should do? I think, I think that there's a number of answers to this question. Number one, I think that if the league is going to come out and say – We've got a new six-game baseline suspension policy for domestic violence. Then you got to use it and not say, well, yes, it was a domestic violence issue, but we're actually going to punish him under the personal conduct policy, and that's why he's only getting one game because of mitigating circumstances. It, it's bullshit. You gave us that policy to get us to go, look, they're taking it seriously. And then they really haven't used it in, in high-profile cases. So I would say if you're going to say something, if you say you're going you're gonna to do something, then do it. Stop. Even if it's going, even if it's going to get grieved and pushed back. Yeah, because then they can't. Then at least the NFL can say, "Well, we did what we said we right. would." Yeah. You like it's. It, there's just so much of this same routine we go through, which is suspend him for only a little public outcry. Then eventually he's out of the league, and it's like, but that. So he didn't get six games. He ended up getting all games because now he's not on the team anymore, and no one's going to pick him up because we've turned him into a cancer. Like. I don't get why we even named this six-game suspension thing in the first place. It's the same thing with, like, I have issues with the personal conduct policy in general because I don't think that the league, by no fault of their own, is equipped to handle these sorts of issues. I think they're very complicated, and unless they're going to educate themselves completely on how to deal with people in all of these different crimes that they're going to punish them for, then they're then it's just a very strange thing where the league has become so powerful that and then when we ask them to use their power, they're like, well, that's not our job. The court didn't find him guilty, even though it says in the personal conduct policy that they don't have to be found guilty. So that I have a huge issue with. I also would say just on like a more what like tangible level, the league has so much money that they could easily establish an external, not in the league, because we've found the issues with the conflicts of interest, but an external network or an external partnership with counseling services in each city where they have a team so that when there is a guy with an issue, let's say with domestic violence, and they find out about it, there's resources, A, for the family, for the victim, because I think a lot of times victims don't know who to reach out to. We saw that with Josh Brown um, when the NFL contacted her in a really shady way and were like, we just want to talk to you about the incident, about your husband's employment. And she called the cops and said, I don't, I don't know if this person really works for the NFL. It didn't make her feel comfortable. And she didn't want to get her husband fired, uh, now ex-husband. Um, I think that there needs to just be more resources to, to help prevent these things from happening, help the actual victims of the crime. Don't worry about fans and optics, but actually the people who are suffering at the hands of your athletes. Um, and also I think you can make, if you can suspend a guy for however many games you want to for whatever, I think you could also make his employment conditional on the fact that he completes a counseling program. That way it isn't just he's in counseling. It's, well, if he doesn't finish that, he can't come back to the team. And it, it may incentivize them to take this seriously. And who knows? It, it's not going to work 100% of the time. You know, like you would like to think you can cure everybody. But you can. It's not always like that. 
But every now and then you could get these Brandon Marshall moments where people realize that the reason they're so violent to their spouse is because they have mental health issues that they didn't know because this isn't a conversation that you have in locker rooms often. I, I just think that there's – the NFL is so powerful, and we've seen it become a, a really – a great platform for having these conversations. I think it can go even further and like actually help athletes have these conversations younger, focus on mental health and, and hopefully get this shit to stop happening. Finishing up on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. With Am I Katie talking Nolan. too much? No, but we have two more quick questions okay. because my dog is in a crate. I know. And I said 40 minutes ago, that in some I got to get out of and here. And in some states, that's a that's, felony. You that's, just that's said, right. so I'm I want to let you. Okay. What's your dream job? To be like a late night host. I was going to say like a John Oliver, but maybe more nights a week. I don't really know. I've sort of gotten to where I am right now by not having like a long-term goal, which See, sounds you know what awful. I thought you were going to say? What? I thought you were going to say, I want to succeed Dan Shaughnessy as the sports yes, columnist Yes, that is, I've Globe. lived to succeed Shanks. What would you, but, but would you have ever wanted to be a newspaper columnist? I don't know. I think I, it's tough to know. Because you have the, what you have is you have the ability, you're opinionated, which I always marvel at columnists who can have a strong opinion about something five days a week. Mm. I can't. I can't either, I, though. I only have to do it once, and I rarely, we don't do it that much in our show. I yeah. have that same thing where people will be like, what's your take on that? I'm like, yeah. I don't know. I feel, I feel very indifferent on it. Yeah. Which is why the, the good thing about having the show once a week and also having it mainly be a comedy show is that I can speak on something serious when it really moves me, but no one's like holding my feet Don't to the you fire. think that Jon Stewart made that possible? It was a hilarious show. Yeah. But there were times where it was almost poignant. Yeah. It was so serious and so important. Yeah. I just, that's, it's so interesting that that show spawned a lot of things, but it kind of spawned, I, I don't know this, but it kind of spawned your show oh, to yeah. some degree. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. If yeah. it didn't exist, we wouldn't exist. Our show doesn't make a lot of sense on paper. Like, oh, we're going to go do this weird, funny comedy bit outside of Yankee Stadium, and then we're going to talk about domestic violence. It's like, what? It doesn't make any sense. But yeah, yeah it's the, the humor is a good way to deliver medicine. It's like the sugar for medicine that, yeah. you know, no one wants to have this conversation. We try to do it. It's very difficult because you've got to walk a very fine line when you're mixing humor and really serious issues. Um, we've erred on the side of just being more serious when we talk about things like that. But right. I think the goal long term would be to get really good at having these conversations but also making sure it's not like a lecture. I don't ever want sports fans to feel like I'm like, listen, sports are bad because I love them. I love them. Mm -hmm. I just want to be able to watch them and not think about all these awful things that I know are happening off the field. Yeah. Finally, what advice do you have? None. For an 18 or 19-year-old kid who thinks that, man, I'd really like to be in the media, but I have no idea what to do. I don't know how to do it, blah, blah, blah. You obviously are very popular among young people, all looking at you to sort of say, hey, I want to be Katie Nolan. So what advice would you have for them? The the thing I tell anyone who ever asks, and I, I mean this, you have the ability now, kids have the ability now to just start. Back in the day, you had to get a job in this local market and work your way up and try to go to a bigger market and national. And now you can just start. You want to write? Start writing. And don't write one great article and send it around. Write a blog. Maintain a blog. I mean, I was when I got this job 
couple iterations of jobs ago, I was writing a blog five days a week, taking it really seriously like it was a job. My friends would be like, why can't we go out? Because I have to write a blog. No one was reading it. But when I finally sent that link to people, they could click on it and see, oh, she She's been doing this every day for a year. She's really committed to it. It wasn't that it was the best writing, but mm -hmm. you could see that I did it and I took it seriously. Then the same thing with videos. Nobody was watching them, but I was making them. And I was trying really hard. And I learned how to use a green screen. And I bought myself professional lighting. And I taught myself how to edit. All of that was because I took it really seriously. And there were days I didn't want to do it, but I did it. And that's why I think I got to a point where no one's going to offer me a job sideline reporting right now. Because if you look at, there's enough stuff that I've made on the internet that you know exactly what my lane is. You know exactly you're not what you're going to ask me to do and what you're not going to ask me to do. And so I tell any, mostly young women are the people that I speak to, but just start creating and take it really seriously. You're not going to be good at it right away. Trust me. There are very old videos of me on the internet that I cringe to watch because I don't know how to deliver a joke, but I do it every day and you get to a point where I'm still not that great at it, but I'm so much better at it than I was because you get in the reps and then you have a wealth of, it's like a portfolio of stuff you can send to anybody that you want to hire you and say, look how good I am at this stuff. Just start. I mean, people couldn't, you couldn't do that back in the day, right? You didn't have a blog no. spot or a live journal. No, be, but back in the day, all I did for the first 12 years is write newspaper articles. Yeah. That's why it's so different, and that's why I think the thing I say is make sure you do a lot of different things because mm -hmm. you have no idea what the job is going to be. Right. I mean, jobs are scarce. You want to be good at a lot of things so that you'd be able to get one of those jobs and so that then you don't have to work in – a Starbucks. Yeah, that's Even though awful. I really have always wanted to work in a Starbucks. No, you haven't. Yeah, you, I have. Maybe for a day. I, but yeah, you I want to be a really barista. No, you don't. Yeah, I do. Okay, Somebody okay. should make that dream happen. No. Oh, it's wait. Over. One piece yeah, of really quick advice that I want to start giving everybody. Go ahead. Write shorter emails. Okay. Best advice you can get. Because I get emails from people that are like, Katie, I really want to shadow you, and it's seven paragraphs. And by the end, yeah. I'm like, I don't even remember what you asked me. Yeah. Be to the point, folks. I get like to that. the point. Good. Katie Nolan, thank you for joining me on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. It was quite a moment. It was. Thank you for having me. It's the MMQB podcast. My thanks again to Adam Schefter and Katie Nolan. You know, it's a little bit of a strange podcast when both of your guests are the people who cover football and who talk about football rather than the people who play the game or who coach the game. And... I'd love to hear from you with some comments about this podcast. Do you like hearing from media folks? Would you rather me just stick strictly to the people who are on the field, in the arena? Let me know. Drop a comment. Drop a review when you go on our page at the MMQB podcast with Peter King. Now, a couple of thoughts about something that just simply isn't dying around the NFL in the wake of a really, really interesting game Sunday night in Denver between the Chiefs and Broncos. So as I do my job in the course of every week, I write this column called Monday Morning Quarterback that appears at the MMQB.com. And every week what I try to do is I try not to have any preconceived notions entering the games. I'm going to write about what people are going to be talking about on Monday morning. So there wasn't really anything screaming out to write about. Originally, at about 8 or 9 o'clock on Sunday night, I said, you know what I'm going to write about? The young quarterbacks in this league. 
And I'm going to center it around Marcus Mariota of Tennessee and Jameis Winston of Tampa Bay. I talked to both of those guys after their games on Sunday. Triumphs for both. And both of them, obviously, in the middle of their second seasons, have probably outperformed what people thought they would do. So I figured, okay, I'm going to do that. But let's just see what happens in the Sunday night game. Well, the Sunday night game, Kansas City and Denver, was about as dramatic and high drama cliffhanging drama as you're going to see in a football game all the way to the end of the game where Cairo Santos of the Kansas City Chiefs as time expired in overtime clanked the ball off the left upright for the winning field goal that just barely snuck over the crossbar as it whizzed past the right upright so everybody I remember just watching Twitter fly by with a hundred responses all at once, basically of America's sports media and America's fans gasping at what they had just seen. So I said, okay, definitely going to write about this game. But what I wanted to write about is why did Gary Kubiak, the Denver coach, make the call that he made? And just to refresh your memory, in overtime, game tied, less than five minutes to go. And this is going to be the last possession that Gary Kubiak has. Denver has the ball fourth and 10 at the Kansas City 44-yard line. He can do one of three things. He can pooch punt it and give Kansas City the ball with one timeout left and about a minute to go, and Kansas City would have to go about 55 yards or 50 yards to have a chance to kick the winning field goal. Maybe a 25 to 30% chance that Kansas City could do that. Or he could go for it on fourth and 10 maybe only about a 10% chance they'll make that. And then he could choose to have his kicker attempt the longest field goal of his life, a 62-yard field goal. And so I just tried to put myself in Gary Kubiak's shoes. And I said, what would I do if I were him? And so Kubiak immediately calls a timeout. And I can tell he's got to be thinking about everything. But there's one thing when America was saying, no, 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 punt the ball, punt the ball, just take the tie, take the tie. There's one thing I don't believe that America knew at that moment, and that is that a tie would be a very close second cousin to a loss for the Denver Broncos, and here's why. Because the Broncos were one and two in AFC West games entering this game, and They had a road game on Christmas remaining with the very tough Chiefs and a home game left with the Raiders. Both of these teams were going to be ahead of Denver in both the standings and the tiebreaker. So even if Denver has a great end to the season and they come up and they play really well, they could still be on the outside looking into the playoffs if they don't win this game, because a tie would be a huge disadvantage for them as they chase both Oakland and Kansas City. So Gary Kubiak chooses at the end of the day to show faith in his team, and that's what he says. I'm going to show faith in my team, and I'm going to go for the field goal. So he attempts the field goal, and obviously it misses. So I, I just remember, after the game, I try to get people on the phone, And I got Andy Reid on the phone, the Chiefs coach. I've known Reid for a long time. And I said, okay, let's go over the decision. And he right away, he says to me, Peter, there was no 
right call there. There's just no right call. Whatever he does, the odds are against him, and it's going to be not necessarily a great decision. And you're going to get criticism for whatever you call there. And I asked him flat out, what would you have done, Andy? And he said he didn't know. Now, maybe he did know. He's paid to know. But he's not going to tell me. He's not going to throw a fellow coach under the bus. But the fact is, uh, you know, the Denver Broncos right now are 1-3 in in the AFC West, and that's bad. But 1-2-1 was very close to being as bad because at the end of the day, in the tiebreaker system, you were penalized for ties. And a tie is almost like a loss. And being so far behind... Oakland, and in addition, Kansas City, being behind Kansas City. I think Gary Kubiak thought as well, hey, listen, even if the odds are against us, we have to go for this. So that's just some thoughts I had. Every decision you can agonize over, you can analyze six or eight times. But in this particular case, I really thought that Gary Kubiak did the right thing, even though when they lined up for the field goal, I didn't think they were going to make it. But I thought that the Hail Mary type of situation that they were in, I would have done the exact same thing and gone for the field goal. Thanks to my guests, Adam Schefter and Katie Nolan. If you enjoy these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Ben Roethlisberger, Drew Brees, and Larry Fitzgerald. You can find these on the MMQB.com or iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Listen to other podcasts in our series as well, with Albert Breer, Gary Grambling, and Andy Benoit. They're great. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Movement Watches and Stamps.com. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice.